Applications for the Techstars Tech Central Sydney Accelerator Class of 2024 are closing on the 22nd of May. I'm Kirsten Hunter, the Managing Director of Techstars Sydney, and I'm looking for diverse and unstoppable founders who are using technology to solve the world's biggest problems to join this Accelerator cohort. The 12 successful businesses will get access to our 13-week mentor-driven accelerator, $120,000 US investment, and access to the Techstars network for life. Head to our Accelerator webpage to learn more and to apply. Hi, I'm Adam Spencer, founder of the Day One Network, which is bringing the history of the Australian startup ecosystem to you. I believe in founders. It's why I do everything I do at Day One and our media company, W2D1 Media. And that's why the Day One Network exists, to create helpful content for founders. We've got some great shows in development, but a large part of what we do couldn't be done without support from our partners and sponsors. And I couldn't be happier than to be working with NTP, who get community better than any other technology recruitment company out there. A Newcastle company like mine, NTP, are invested in seeing the growth of the local tech community in Newcastle, Sydney, and more broadly, Australia. So thank you, NTP, for helping us bring helpful content to founders and the startup community in Australia. Back to the interview. Hi, I'm Adam Spencer, and welcome to Day One, the podcast that spotlights Australian startups, founders, and the organizations that empower Australian entrepreneurship. We go back to the beginning to tell the story of Australia's most inspiring founders and how they built their companies. You're listening to a special interview series as part of a documentary W2D1 is producing about the history of the Australian startup ecosystem. This episode was conducted by guest host Will Cho. Hi everyone and welcome back to the Australian Startup Series interviews. Our guests today are Isabel and Eloise from Taboo. Welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having us. So could you tell us a bit about yourself and what you guys are currently doing with Taboo and just I guess a brief background about yourselves? Yeah, of course. So Taboo is a social enterprise. We are registered like a regular company and we sell organic cotton pads and tampons in Australia and all of our profits are dedicated to eradicating period poverty. That's our jam, that's why we started a company in the first place. Yeah, we're really proud about the sustainable nature of our product and the delivery we sell online, in store, uh, and we're about five years old. We're about to have our fifth birthday. And just to clear up the um, different voices, um, I'm Isabel, and that was just Eloise. (laughs) So um, yeah, we're the co-founders of Taboo. What are you guys currently doing aside from the startups? So, yeah, as Eloise said, we started Taboo five years ago. And at that point, Taboo, um, the team just consisted of Eloise and I. And and we spent a lot of time really um, laying the groundwork by uh, learning from a lot of amazing mentors um, that we have that we met through. the incredible community here in Adelaide in South Australia. And so we kind of laid those foundations, started bringing our idea to life. We had a crowdfunding campaign and then throughout that process started bringing um, in some more amazing team members. So that's what we've done for the last five years alongside uh, studying. So we're both at uni. Uh, I'm in my fourth year of medicine at the moment and Eloise is in her fifth year of business and international relations. That's amazing. And take us back. Would you guys say that you've always been entrepreneurs? And what was the inspiration for um, creating Taboo? Yeah, I think often my parents remind me of how I was always coming up with little inventions when I was a kid. I would um, like have this little book and I would scribble in all these ideas, like 
dog bowls and back supports for sausage dogs and <laughs> random things like that. My granddad was an inventor, so I think I've always had quite the creative head when it comes to solving the issues ahead of me. And both Izzy and I have always been very focused on, on other people's lives. I think we were very well looked after. We had a roof over our head. We had an education and our school was very philanthropically minded. So we were always aware that so many people didn't have the privilege that we did. So I guess it's unsurprising that where our hearts were very much um, attuned to other people's suffering, our own suffering as well, you know, just really being invested in the lives around us. When we learned about period poverty and we understood how detrimental it is to so many people, uh, we were really quite inspired to create a solution and to create a sustainable solution. And, you know, as we grew up as well, we were really getting excited about how business is, is so accessible in, in being a sustainable solution to so many issues in that social enterprise model. Hmm. It sounds like a very, I guess, what you would call an accidental entrepreneur type story <laughs> where, you know, you were creating these little inventions as a kid. Um, and then that kind of just naturally fed into um, creating your own business when you started university. Mm. As Eloise said, we've always been quite people focused. And I think the draw card for me personally, in terms of starting a business that I probably didn't recognize until a bit later was just this idea of having a problem and then getting lots of different people, lots of different skill sets mobilized to then solve that problem together. It's been so incredible throughout the taboo journey and um, getting amazing individuals alongside, but also um, other groups and collaborations and all these sorts of um, people and community all working towards the same goal. But I guess that the important part is that everyone is contributing different skill sets, different experiences, different wisdom. And that's been a really um, incredible journey to be a part of. Yeah, that's amazing. So as you guys mentioned, you started Taboo about five years ago in 2017. What was it like back then? I know you mentioned you did crowdfunding and you had a team of mentors to surround you. Was it difficult to start then? I think the first year of designing and developing Taboo was quite exciting more than anything. Um, neither of us had started tertiary study yet. So we you know, had quite a lot of flexible time at our hands to have coffees with different people and throw ourselves into the opportunities that came about and the beauty of the Adelaide ecosystem is very much when you introduce an issue to one person, they might not be the person to solve that problem, but they would definitely have someone to recommend you. So we were kind of going from one recommendation to the other for a whole year, really. We were both fortunate enough to go traveling and do a little bit of life learning as well with different part-time work. So yeah, it was really quite dynamic, exciting, and it really allowed us to grow our passion further as well when we kind of discovered answers to a lot of the questions we had slowly the idea we had became more and more achievable and attainable and that's really what led us to that crowdfunding campaign at the end of that first year and I think especially having 57 grand worth of other people's money in our hands was the point of going oh, okay there's no turning back this has happened people trust us uh, and now we have the funds to make it happen so it was a really great way to finish the year to be honest. Mm, and I think it really helped that we were very young at the time. We were 17 and 18. Um, and so we were fresh out of high school. And so much of our, um, of actually reaching our mission, regardless um, of whether we had product to sell or not, was all about starting the conversation about period poverty and addressing that stigma straight away. 
And so much of our conversations um, were with other young people and, and school groups, school classes, classrooms, assemblies. Um, and we were, I guess, able to enter those spaces because we were there not that long beforehand. And um, so we had all those connections with our with our friends and our teachers and the other school system in South Australia, particularly as well. And that sort of just started this domino effect of um, conversation starting, but also creating this community around Taboo that would then become really our, our customers and um, people who were joining us in our mission. Yeah, that's amazing. So Eloise, you mentioned that in the Adelaide ecosystem, it was very much, I guess, very welcoming. There was one recommendation that led to the next and so on. Who were some of those, um, I guess, movers and shakers that had a big impact on, on your um, journey? Yeah, and there are plenty around, but uh, the first mentor that we really had to help us out was Mike Chalmers, who is a social entrepreneur himself, who um, now runs a cafe called Out- Cafe Outside the Square in Whitmore Square in Adelaide. And I think it really helped that we knew him when we were young through a, a friend of ours. And it really helped that he had already laid the groundwork to take us seriously. I think that was the hardest thing to communicate to any mentor was, yeah, have them take you seriously. But um, because he had known us for many years, I think he, he did quite instantly. And then he led us to a handful of other mentors. Jeff Quitco was one. Michaela Webster has been really helpful in the past. And yeah, I think just so many people in and around. We've, we've also been a part of a couple of ecosystems that are specifically designed to take care for startups. So uh, Think Lab and there are a couple of others in South Australia that are really wonderful. Um, we've met a lot of mentors around the traps there and a lot of people as well. It's really nice to be inspired by other startups that are around you because you're all in it together. You can really understand the difficulties and you can also really help one another. So the general um, domino effect of maybe learning about a grant, then someone will pass that information on to you because that it's been yeah, kind of fed to them. It's it's just, um, I, I love to think of Adelaide as it's Goldilocks city. It's not too big and it's not too small. You really do understand things quicker. Yeah, it's just right. Because when it's too big, there's, there's, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of competition and so on. When, there's, when it's too small, you know, maybe the infrastructure is not there quite yet. Yeah. So what you said just then kind of piqued my interest when you said that it was quite difficult at the beginning to get people to take you seriously. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, I think um, both Izzy and I have felt the frustration of perhaps being not taken seriously from first glance um, or first sound. We, we don't sound very mature or we don't sound very old. Maybe we do now, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, we, you know, especially when we started, we were very young. We sounded young. We presented young. Obviously, we didn't have a career's worth of experience in entrepreneurship. So, um, you know, and we were really, we're really honest people. We definitely wore our knowledge on our on our sleeves. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes, yeah, lack of knowledge on yeah. our sleeves. Um, but that was really good intention because we, we wanted to absorb the information we didn't know. So we were never going to, yes, there was an element of maybe nodding away at acronyms. You have no idea <laughs> the Absolutely. meaning behind But, you know, apart from that, we were really honest and, oh, sorry, can you explain that? We've actually had no experience in this area. And that was the best thing we could have done because we ended up learning far more than we would have if we pretended like we knew what we were doing yeah so yeah I I think it that was lost on some but it was more so I think valued by others because they recognized our honesty and they wanted to respond with with their um scar tissue they wanted to share their experience because um 
they believed in what we were doing and that was the really easy part was explaining to people about period poverty and instantly they wanted to give us their time because it's not about us and it's definitely about the mission and what we can achieve through our business model and that's I think how we attracted so many wonderful mentors but yeah there's only been a handful of people that haven't really taken us seriously per se and you can't blame them that's that it's business Um, and we continue to work hard to prove ourselves to opportunities that might have not been interested back then now they are Hmm. yeah absolutely Um, I guess one of the the main focuses of of this podcast is to reach everyone in the ecosystem just so that we can look to the future you know change policies how can we better support our founders and would you say that people not taking you seriously would you say that that's a gap in our ecosystem that should be addressed I think it's probably um, a gap that's narrowing over time And I think time and time again, young people are proving that their perhaps lack of um, experience is a huge strength. It means that they're asking the questions that um, perhaps people haven't thought to ask for a long time because they've learnt a certain thing in a certain way. Um, And so they're asking new, fresh questions. They're providing new, fresh solutions. Um, And more often than not, uh, kids are like so smart, so, Mm. so young these days as well. Um, They prove themselves time and time again that if there's a problem, they can apply themselves to the solution um, and provide that perspective that's needed. Um, It's been a a real honour in the last couple of years to be recognised as as young people who who have some interesting ideas to solve some problems. And and that has meant that um, both Eloise and I have had amazing opportunities to be a part of, you know, whether that be panels or or groups or whatever that is, um, providing that young perspective. And people are really taking that seriously and, and making a space for young people um, which is really encouraging and it, it really um, it's a good model to show other young people that their voices can be taken seriously that's obviously um, not the case in every single situation in every single demographic or community but um, it for us it's been a huge encouragement yeah, that's absolutely amazing. And it's good to hear that the gap is narrowing in a practical way that gives voice to the young people. As you mentioned, you've been invited to talk on panels and so on, just to get your voice out there. Yeah, I do think that's something that we've been really lucky with, though. I think there is a bit of luck in play there, because there are so many other voices that I would love to see on panels similar that maybe don't get the cut. And I think the opportunity we have with policy shift is around the social enterprise discussion, because still there's no really structure for social enterprises to fit in in a really succinct way the language is very different across the industry um the grants are really quite fluid or you you don't really fit into the category of being a successful commercial business because you don't have any investors that profit from your um input or you don't really fit into a charity spectrum because um you're selling a product and you're making money so that discussion really needs to be refined and I think there's definite opportunity for policy to shift there uh, because, in my opinion, that's the only way we can kind of address the world's to-do list is to really reshape how our economy works and where where our investment sits because uh, it, it hasn't proved to be very sustainable or helpful in the, in the notion towards equality. So, yeah, I, I'm excited to see policy shift um, towards social enterprise more and I'm really confident that it will because there's a lot of a lot of pressure to have something change. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that the middle box that social enterprises fit where we don't really 
have a structure per se. Is that specific to Australia or, or have you seen some, I guess, examples um, in other geographies where this has been implemented successfully? There are some wonderful kind of third parties or middle ground um, representatives that help social enterprises to be more secure, like B Corp and social traders. They're really good examples of how social enterprises can be um, supported. Uh, but realistically it's a global economic discussion and I think there needs to be a global movement in support of that in in a global economic sense we don't really reward businesses that have social outputs as much as they do or financial outputs not even economic outputs but financial outputs so yeah I I don't think it's really something that we can address nation by nation it's very much a shift um, that we all kind of need to sign up to at once in some capacity, at least. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's not something that should be restricted to a specific geography per se. Mm. Is venture capital um, on the table for Taboo? Yeah, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, what types of investment you can have, where your capital comes from matters. But I think it there's still like a broader economic discussion to be had. I don't think we're really getting the point if we're wanting the wealthy's wealth shouldn't be that, you know, we really need to to simmer down, I guess, not just where and how our capital is measured, but the long-term effects and who it benefits still is, you know, is, is the kind of pain point in the typical access to capital that we still have, even if it is for venture success or, you know, social success. There's, it, I'm not sure it's, it really fits into the social enterprise longevity discussion mm. completely. Yeah. yeah. I know what you mean. Just because, if I'm hearing you right, it's that venture capital has just, I guess, tunnel vision on what the end outcome is, and that is a purely financial you know, yeah. sense, yeah. a financial outcome. Whereas taboo is is it doesn't necessarily align to that that vision or that goal per se. No, like our success will never make an individual rich, um, and that's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of social enterprise. Yes, we can have a great amount of employees that are, you know, looked after, but we're not going to um, be procuring more wealth for someone that just, you know, we had a lot of time on our hands. That was the main investment that um, Izzy and I put into Taboo. That's not going to be rewarded with a million dollar paycheck in three years. That's yeah. that's never how our company is designed. And I don't think um, social enterprises will be that effective, businesses, sorry, will be that effective in a social realm unless they really reconsider where their wealth is ending up because the wealth gap has a lot of, well, yeah, it's, it's one of the biggest fields into the inequality that we see. So, yeah. And I guess like um, from a, I guess maybe a simpler perspective, I'm um, just bringing it back. We've always considered that um, with privilege comes responsibility. And we knew that as Eloise said, we had a roof over our head. We were privileged to have access to amazing education. We were safe and fed. Uh, and so that meant that we wanted to invest that time um, and at the cost, I guess, of becoming richer and richer and richer because that was a, coming from a place of already experiencing privilege enough to be safe and secure and developing, but then passing on that that time and the effort and the energy and um, what otherwise might be considered an opportunity to gain financially. Hmm. I know, I know what you mean, um, Isabel. And it, it seems to me that for a social enterprise to grow and scale, it requires founders to 
in essence, have lots of time to be invested in it um, and, and perhaps go through what you guys have done with crowdfunding. Um, and, and I guess, is that the secret source to, to grow a social enterprise? I think at the time it was our only option um, because we didn't owe anyone anything after the crowdfunding had wrapped up. People got some um, hats and some stickers. <laughs> um, but um, it's our I, currency. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a beautiful example on how business can work without direct investors, without people expecting a profit. It's so reasonable to to hold the expectation as consumers on a company that you get what you pay for. So I think um, the typical crowd sourcing or crowdfunding design is great because um you know i want this watch i'll pay for this watch three months advance three months in advance but i'll get my watch eventually and this company gets to start you know the way to start and again it's this big economic discussion because then you've got issues with growth capital and um you know that's something that is really helpful to have an investor on board so i don't think there's a perfect option or opportunity to create your capital yet um, and I think that's why so many social enterprises come up with their capital in creative ways. No social enterprise, I don't think, starts the same way. And it's very much dependent on what you're trying to achieve and how. And it worked for us, but mm. it might not work for everyone. And our startup costs were, I guess, thanks to the time we had dependent on you know where we were in life, being quite mm. young. We, we had that time available to invest and we were willing to and we were excited to. But no one should work for free either. So there definitely needs to be some work done in that area. (laughs) Yeah. And I think the crowdfunding was particularly um, effective for us, given our mission, overarching mission of um, eradicating period poverty, which, as I said before, um, relies on sparking the conversation, reducing that stigma as well. So having a community around Taboo was so important Um, and the people that were our financial contributors then became our customers and and felt that sense of um i guess responsibility to taboo as a company but not only that to to the mission as well and as soon as you you know you get started you get involved in a um in a crowdfunding campaign you know the natural thing is to maybe tell someone else about it um because you're obviously passionate about it already and so that um yeah that Chinese Whispers effect of just getting the message out there um, really served us well, not only just to financially, but also um, as a company. Yeah, absolutely. And I love what you said about this idea of building a community around you um, because as you mentioned you you were just outside of high school for example and and a lot of the supporters um, from high schools came on board because it was not long after you had just left so that community building aspect seems to be an important part of your journey as well Mm, yeah I think it was Eloise that mentioned this. Um, by way of grants, is there anything out there for social enterprises or is it really just one big kerfuffle? Um, yeah, there's there, there are grants around if you dig for them, but I don't think there's a certain, there's not so much security around I'm going to start a social enterprise and this money is potentially accessible. It's very much, you really have to fit the bill and the bill's very different depending on where, which state you're from, even how state governments are, of you um social enterprise a lot of people who would typically for example um businesses who might offer charity discounts they're starting to incorporate social enterprises into that um i guess qualification of receiving that discount so yes the conversation is very much picking up i think social enterprises can often be still kind of 
put in the silo of charity or business very distinctly. I wouldn't say that there's a social enterprise category of opportunity for grants. But I think as well, if you're applying for a business grant, a partic- like a traditional traditional business grant and you have a social output as well as a financial or commercial opportunity, that's appealing. So, yeah, I think people's criteria are shifting towards more socially focused business and charities maybe shifting towards more sustainable charities, which is just a social enterprise. So really there should be <laughs> there its own category. I don't know. It's encouraging to know that some things are going to happen because both areas are kind of bending in the same direction mm. of the middle. It's like a spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really, it is encouraging to know that the expectations around um, like social environmental output of just your regular company is changing a lot, like the expectations on um, what the impact of that company is. So yeah, it's, I guess, seeing those big for-profit companies um, demonstrate a bit of concern about the society around them or... um, or the environment around them is encouraging. But of course, then you can kind of get into that murky water of virtue signaling and um, and claim to be doing all these good things for the sake of promoting that in itself. So yeah, there's a lot of, um, again, that comes back to the the importance for, for clear vocabulary as well and expectations and standards. And that will only come when social enterprises are better understood. So yeah, um, Isabel and and Eloise, as you know, what we're trying to do with this podcast is reach all corners of the ecosystem, just so that we can better support our entrepreneurs in the future, as well as social entrepreneurs. Um, We want everyone from policymakers, academics, founders, investors to hear the story. What's something that they need to hear from both of you? We've probably repeated it a few times, but just this understanding around what exactly is a social enterprise what are the financial models, the legal models that, that people who are entering that social enterprise space for good reasons and with a lot of passion and enthusiasm, how can they go into that space knowing what the template can look like? Obviously, social enterprises are inherently very unique and they all look very different and they all have different structures, but knowing kind of where you sit is really important to then, you know, communicate that to your customers, communicate it to your stakeholders, all of that. Um, so, yeah, that language needs to be refined. Those structures need to be refined and that will have that sustainable impact on the community and the environment in, in turn. Yeah, that's amazing. And lastly, if a brand new entrepreneur or founder came to you, given all your mistakes, experience, wins, what's one piece of advice you'd give them to increase their chances of success? I think one of the the best things that worked for us that I always recommend for other people is just to be really honest Mm. um, in all elements of business. So being honest with yourself and the amount of information you think you understand um, and then being honest when you walk into conversations with people about what you want to do, be really transparent. I think transparency speaks so, yeah, it's so valuable. I think as well there's a lot of performance in social enterprise ecosystems sometimes that is perhaps lost and I think transparency is one of the most sharp values that you can bring into the space because it's it's very obvious um and I, I also think that the um the nature of business is really shifting so having an authentic reason why you're doing what you're doing if you're doing it not just for yourself then people are really inspired and excited to support that as well yeah there are too many people on this planet not to 
think about everyone else. So <laughs> I think, yeah, the, the standards are shifting and if you want to do something good for other people, then um, now's the time to do it. I think the environment's the right time. Yeah. Yeah, and I would say um, make sure you spend a lot of time and effort curating an amazing team around you as well. We um, have this incredible team of very like-minded, passionate, um, skillful people um, and the dynamic in the office is amazing because we've um, we've always sort of had a real focus on the people we're working with um, and it, it's I, it's pretty obvious in all kind of realms of life and all workplaces a difficult dynamic can really affect output and productivity but also just your mental state and all of that sort of stuff um, so I, I would say just really yeah take those decisions really seriously as well in terms of who's around you and who you're learning from yeah that's brilliant what's next for taboo oh well we just launched our new tampons they're wrapped in paper so where um we have a plastic free period line now completely that's exciting for us so hopefully that um we can see us growing in australia we want to grow our range and we want to grow um where we want to be, be national, um, hopefully by the end of the year in store as well as online. And we obviously want to, yeah, do a lot with the, the profit that we generate. So hopefully we can really see the end of period poverty in Australia very soon and then definitely overseas in the next five to 10 years. That's absolutely amazing. Isabel and Eloise, it's been a pleasure to have you both on the show today. Thanks, Will. Thanks for having us. Where could the audience go if they wanted to learn more and connect? Please go to taboo.au.co and see our website. Otherwise, you can Google Taboo Period Products and find us on Instagram and Facebook. And you can listen to our podcast, The Flow. Mm. We've got some great um, newsletters that come out as well. <laughs> the EDMs, they're really fun. I hope you enjoyed that interview. More interviews are on the way. Follow the podcast wherever you're listening right now. Stay tuned for more interviews with many, many more amazing people from the Australian startup ecosystem. Thanks for listening and see you next time.